good. All right. Well, would you open? Well, kids, are you? Pastor Debbie is in the back. You are welcome. Um, go join her. I was having to try to keep up with their motions this morning up front. It was. <laughs> so our text this morning is Exodus twelve. Verses 29 to 50. Um, we've been working our way slowly but surely through Exodus, and we're here um, at the end of the plague. So would you read Would you read with me? Kids, especially firstborn, you're going to want to get out of here quickly if you can. Um, <laughs> at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the middle of the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go, out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they, what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall, show, shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one, there shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded. Moses and Aaron. Let's pray. Father God, you have given us your word. Uh, You have given us the people of Israel. And more than that, Lord, you've given us your son. That we might see and know your salvation and love. Lord, pierce our stopped up ears this morning. Soften my own hard heart. And enable us to hear you, to come to you, to love you more deeply in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a story uh, from, they say, third century China. I don't know how they know. Third century China, um, a guy is trying to sell, he's on the side of the road, and he's trying to sell a, sword, a spear and a shield. 
person asks him, how good is your spear? He says, my spear is so strong, there's no shield that can stop it. They said, well, then how good is your shield? My shield is so good, there's no spear that can pierce it. What happens if you throw your spear at your shield? <laughs> and the salesman is silent. You heard the phrase, what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object? And this is the question of the Exodus. This is the question of the world's greatest empire with its um, most elevated ruler, the Pharaoh, the unstoppable force. Pharaoh who can enslave whole nations. Pharaoh who can tame the Nile and build cities, who can create mountains out of the desert. That's, after all, what the pyramids are. He is the spear that will pierce and control anyone and anything that stands in the way of his purpose. To be and to remain the world's ascendant, eternal empire. But along the way of being the unstoppable force, he met the God who is the immovable object, who has promised that he will restore the world through his people, Israel. So the question is, who comes out on top. We're nine plagues deep at this point in chapter 12. God has unleashed nine separate plagues on Pharaoh, and nine times Pharaoh has said, ooh, that hurts. Um, let me, you know, think about it for a minute. <laughs> and then changed his mind. It's been the, the Nile River turning into blood, and the frogs, and the gnats, and the flies, and the locusts, and the the hail and the darkness and the boils and the, and the livestock falling over dead. It's been all of these things. And, and every time, you think it's going to be the thing that knocks Pharaoh out. You think it's going to be the thing that stops him. But he finds a way. He finds a way through. If you've read the story, you know it gets, in some ways, tragic. What happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. I think that question strikes us. I think it strikes me because on one level I wrestle with that question through my life. I've got a paradox in myself. Life and death. Right? Unstoppable force, immovable object. On one hand, everything in us is built for life. Everything in us is built to grow and enjoy and reproduce and dedicate and send out into the world. Everything in us is, is meant to, to kind of take in good and beautiful things, to celebrate in them, to, to rejoice in them. We're meant to go have good relationships. We're meant to discover, to pursue life, to cultivate it. And yet, no matter how much we try to do good, no matter how much we try to be good, it always turns out as death. Our bodies, like I said this morning in Sunday school, <laughs> end up in hospital beds. We try to have good relationships, and we discover that we're selfish. We try to give ourselves to the world, and we discover that I'm actually not that altruistic. 
We go on mission trips thinking, boy, this is going to be it. We're going to do it. We're really going to pour ourselves out. And it's going to be two weeks of just awesome love. And, and all of these kids are going to love me. And, the, you know, the Facebook pictures are just going to last forever and ever and ever. And we discover that it's hot and the, there's bugs and they're making me sleep on the ground. I won't tell you about some of the things I've discovered <laughs> on mission trips trying to build walls and fences. We become something else. We're committed to being good parents. And then we find out, I kind of hate this kid, right? <laughs> like, when they were born, it was wonderful and beautiful. And then all of a sudden, it's like, just stop. Whatever it is, just stop being who you are right now because you're killing me, kid, right? Even when we've been dedicated to God, even when we have everything going for us, this is kind of this paradox. And, and I honestly, I think it goes deeper. I think it's not just us and our relationship and life and death. I actually think it, it goes deeper into our relationship with God because for so many of us, we look at God and we see God in one of two ways. This is kind of how the world tends to view God, and often it gets pretty deep into who we are. The first is this kind of violent picture of God. God is all-powerful. He can do anything he wants to do, right? Yay, hooray. We all learned that in Sunday school. But then all of a sudden we discover God's all-powerful. He can do all this good stuff, but there's still bad things in the world. So why is a God who can do every good thing allowing bad things to take place in the world? If so, God must be cruel, and I don't know that I want to worship a cruel God. Who could change it, but doesn't. He's just like a kid with a magnifying glass over a bunch of ants. He doesn't solve my problems. Why would I trust him? On the other hand, maybe we have a God who really, really loves us, and, and he's kind of everywhere, and he knows everything, but he just can't really help. He's, his hands are sort of tied. He can't really do everything that we thought he could do. We, we're a little more mature as a species now. We used to think that God was all-powerful, but now that we know that he's not really all-powerful. In which case, why would I worship a God that's weak? If God really can't engage or deal with the world's problems, then why that God? Let me go find somebody else who can. So we're stuck here in this paradox, the kind of unstoppable fact of my own suffering, the unstoppable fact of my own confusion and loneliness and difficulty meets the immovable object of God's indifference or cruelty. And so what we get is a world in which people turn to all kinds of things just to cope. We don't have the answer, so we're just getting through. We just kind of shrug our shoulders, and it's like, I, I don't know how to answer this question about who God is, whether he's good or whether he's not, and so I'm just going to trust that God's probably good and watch reality TV to kind of make those feelings go away. We just end up coping. Bob Dylan has this lyric in the song, Joker Man. I'm not going to do the voice. <laughs> Freedom just around the corner for you. But with the truth so far off, what good would it do? Freedom just around the corner for you, but with the truth so far off, what good would it do? And that's the place so many of us live our lives. Like freedom is right there. We can almost touch it. We can almost smell it. 
and see it, but then if we don't have the truth to go along with it, then freedom ultimately doesn't mean anything. Again, we're stuck between life and death, between spirit and flesh. We're stuck between cynicism and delusion. We're just stuck in this paradox. How do we reconcile it? Freedom might be there. It's it's the ninth plague, and Israel is looking out over the edge going, God said he would save us, and he should be saving us right now. But if I can't access something solid on the other side of my freedom, then who cares? All the freedom in the world won't do anything for me if it's not attached to something real. How does Israel solve the problem? Or, or rather, I guess, how does God solve the problem on Israel's behalf? Because that's always the key, right? Israel's problems get solved when they stop trying to solve their problems. We read this, and I, I, <laughs> I told Wes and Summer and Miguel and Christina yesterday, this is maybe the worst passage in the scriptures to read on baby dedication day, right? <laughs> Here, here come the babies. Isn't this wonderful? And then God slew all the firstborn. Um, there was not a household without someone dead. Like, it just kind of doesn't get worse than that, I guess. But we're also going to be baptizing people today, and this is maybe the best possible text that we can be reading for baptism. So in some ways, I guess it all balances out. <laughs> well, how does God solve the problem? He goes to the root of Israel's problem. Because remember, how does Israel's story in Exodus begin? Way back in chapter 1, Israel is enslaved and growing. God is blessing them with life. There are more and more Israelites. And as there become more and more Israelites, Pharaoh, the father of the Pharaoh in this story, gets kind of nervous. And in getting nervous, he decides there needs to be a little bit of population control. And so he tells the midwives who care for all of the Hebrews, take all the baby boys, and what you're going to do is chuck them in the river. Okay? Child sacrifice, offer them up to the river gods. You're going to take those babies, throw them in the river. Moses miraculously makes it through. But that's sort of the origin story of this book. That Pharaoh, the empire, the one who is over Israel, is taking the children, God's own children, and killing them for his own purposes and ends. He doesn't want Israel to be what they are becoming, to be the thing that God is making them, and so he intervenes. And so maybe it shouldn't be a total surprise to us that where does God ultimately hit Egypt? But in their own children. And he doesn't go there first. It could have been the first plague. He could have started here, but instead he sort of slowly ramps up to it and gives Pharaoh so many opportunities to turn, so many opportunities to change, but there there is a moment where there's no longer a chance. There is a moment where that window kind of closes and you suffer the consequences. And, And for so many of us, if we looked really, I mean really, if we looked at the things that we're suffering with, if we look at the problems that we have in our life, and we looked at our own sorrow, what we might find is that the nature of that sorrow has a connection to the nature of our sort of original wounds. And that if we want God to really enter in and solve those things, we have to open up that space. 
if we want God to really redeem, we've got to open up that place in our hearts that we keep closed. God goes to the root of the sin. And the details, the details in this passage are so visceral. It's like Moses rose up in the middle of the night, or Pharaoh, rather, rose up in the middle of the night. Like his eyes pop open as he hears his son not breathing. And he calls Moses and Aaron in and says, up, out, go, get out of this place. And as you go, this is the ultimate humbling. As you go, bless me. He, he wants Israel, as they are leaving this place, to turn around and bless him. He's so humbled that he, Pharaoh, literally a god in the way that they operated, is asking the slaves to bless him. We discover, of course, that Pharaoh isn't really an unstoppable force. The ego, the bluster, is cracked open. I heard someone say this week, no one tells you about the first three weeks of having a baby, right? They just tell you how great it's going to be. <laughs> this was very much my experience, okay? <laughs> it's, and maybe they, like, vaguely warn you, but, but there's no way to tell somebody how, like, mind-bogglingly difficult and beautiful it's going to be to be holding that child in your arms at 3.30 in the morning. Um, and when they refuse to sleep yet again, uh, right? Like, it's, it's not easy. And, and it, it will crack anybody's ego. It will crack anybody's sense of self. I distinctly remember the feeling like they literally just let me leave the hospital with this human being. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'm responsible for them. How is this legal? You know, like, I, there should be something around me. <laughs> but in those moments, we discover our absolute dependence on God to bring us through. Even if our experience of God is really just needing a knowledge that's beyond us, needing to know that there's an intelligence that's greater than us. I encourage you, wherever you are, lean into that idea. If that's the first step, it's just knowing that, you know what? I don't know who God is. I don't know exactly what he's about. And I don't know that I can say with confidence all that he's done. But I know that there's an intelligence greater than me. I know that there's something beyond me that speaks to my heart, that loves me. I know that somehow love is a reality in the universe and that it's bigger than me. And so Pharaoh, in his defeat, needs the Hebrews to bless him. He needs to know that in all of his resolution against God, that somehow there is somebody who can say something good about who he is, even if it's a slave that he's despised and oppressed. How do the Hebrews come through this? Well, the thing is, even if we come up in the church, even if we're the good kids, none of us come to God intact. We have to come to God broken. And when we encounter God, you guys, it's, it's physical. It does something to us. It's covered in someone's blood, even if it's a lamb's blood. 
And, and we read this passage, and I read this passage, and I think, why does it have to be so violent, right? Like, why does God have to kill a lamb in order to save these guys? Why does it have to show up like that? Is God like some kind of villain in a video game or on like some HBO series where he just demands blood, right? But, but the truth is, is that we like to think that the world, someone up there can just magically snap their fingers and everything will be right. And it's not reality. It's not reality. The principle here is that at the heart of all creation, at the heart of all life, is sacrifice. There's this deep union between life and death. When I drank coffee this morning, some coffee bean had to die in order for that to happen. Like there was a plant somewhere that had the thing that it was, it was spent its whole life doing. Like I'm going to put these beans out and it's going to make more coffee plants. And I'm going to go out into the world and somebody came and stripped those beans off and threw them into an oven and roasted them and packaged them up and sent them off here and ground them down into powder and then I'm just sitting there sipping it like nothing happened at all, right? But life is connected to sacrifice. It's, it's whether you ate sausage this morning, like guess what? Something died. The kids are gone. Okay, we don't want to spoil. There is this even, even if it's something totally neutral like a tomato, right? There's rot that goes into the compost that produces the plant. Life and death have this relationship that ultimately brings about more life because God is good. But if we don't notice that, we can think that somehow we're always just going to go up and to the right. Like our life is just going to be this constant growth and development and nobody ever has to die or suffer and God just makes it good. And it's just a lie. It's just a lie. The God of the Hebrews, unlike all the other gods, by the way, unlike Pharaoh especially, is not one who demands human sacrifice. He's not one who requires that babies be thrown into a river. He's not one who requires that his own image be killed in order to save. Instead, this God of the Hebrews becomes the human. He becomes the man. You heard it in John 1. It's so significant that John the Baptist, the one who is the forerunner, the one who announces Jesus, when he sees him publicly, what is it that he calls him? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This Lamb and this person become one in Christ. So that the sacrifice that gets made is not one that we have to give with our own lives or with our neighbors or with our children, but in fact, instead of the blood running down the wood around the doorpost of their houses, it's, it's the God who becomes human, who becomes the lamb, and his blood runs down the wood of the cross. You see, so like the salvation becomes something that God actually enters in order to make it possible for us. God steps into our world and into our history and into our very life to do the sacrifice, the thing that we cannot do for ourselves. Peter says, his righteousness for our unrighteousness so that we might be brought to God. We have got to get this straight. God is not violent or cruel or impotent. He doesn't demand that we 
He doesn't demand from us more than we can give. And he doesn't hold off on his good gifts until we really give more. He's not waiting to shower down blessings upon you until you come and tithe. Right? He's not going to turn back into your life, you know, two or three times whatever you give to the TV preacher. God is giving his goodness to you. He is giving his life to you. The problem is we just don't see it. In our selfishness and our clinging to ourselves and our clinging to our own lives and therefore clinging to death, we become blind. God is not violent or cruel. And at the same time, he's not weak or impotent. He doesn't look at our world and go, looks tough. <laughs> Good luck, guys. Right? He doesn't look at war and abuse and poverty and need and spiritual emptiness and just say, wow, that looks really hard. We may see a God who is cruelly absent, when really he's waiting for us to step up. When really the gift that he's offering us is the opportunity to respond and be a part of the redemption. We may see a God who is impotent, but really he's not impotent, impotent to respond. His patience often has to do with the redemption of something that is far beyond us. We've got to get those things in line. As Pastor Cody said last week, we're all invited into this moment, into this kind of world historical, cosmic salvation moment. He talked about the movie Groundhog Day and the way that day just repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated until, until, forgetting the guy's name, what's the guy's name in the movie? Phil, there we go. <laughs> Until Phil actually gives himself to it, right? He just abandons himself to the process and says, fine, I'm just going to be good then. If this day is going to keep coming back, I'm going to learn piano and catch a kid falling out of the tree and keep a woman from choking. Rather than being this selfish thing, he just falls into the day. And what we're doing in Christ is falling into this day of salvation. It kind of telescopes all together. It's like when you look through a telescope and you see three different mountain ranges and they look like they're all right behind each other and then you get up close and you're like, man, I got like 400 more miles to hike. <laughs> right? Because they just, in the telescope, they all kind of come together. And that's what happens in these kind of cosmic days of salvation. We've got to ask the question, who then is God? God, God is not the sense of freedom or life or a beautiful sunrise. He's not the joy of family. He's not a really good brunch on Sunday. I know there's really good brunches on Sunday, but that's not God. And he's not even the feeling of community that tends to show up. God is whatever, whoever God is and whatever we can accept about him, God is the one who brought Israel out of Egypt. God is the one who saved the slaves in the Exodus. God is the one who put Pharaoh in his place so that he could save these people who were oppressed. That's who God is. And confident in that fact, because of that, I can enjoy every moment of beauty and every sunrise and every brunch and every moment of joy with my family and every good thing in the world because I know that God is something bigger than me. But I can also take all my suffering and loneliness and sorrow and long nights and submit them to God, knowing 
but he's not responsible to me to answer for every single incident of my disappointment or my sorrow or my loss or my abandonment. But instead, God has already answered all of those moments in the Exodus. God has already answered the question of whether or not he's good in Jesus Christ on the cross. Whoever God is, he's the God who raised Israel up out of Egypt and the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And he's already answered every question and need that we have. Israel, in their history, this isn't the last time that they're oppressed by a big empire. They come up out of Egypt before long. You know, Assyria is oppressing them. Moab is oppressing them. They go out into exile in Babylon. Eventually, Hitler comes around. They end up in the Holocaust. I mean, it just happens again and again. It's Rome and it's Greece. It's every empire you can think of has oppressed the Jews. And what answer do they give every single time? The Exodus. God is the one who brought us out of Egypt. And somehow, some way, in some period of time, he'll do it again. And friends, we have an even more concrete example. We Christians live with this even more visceral image that instead of the blood of a lamb and the kneading bowls, I love that image, the kneading bowls, right? All the, the, the Israelites take their bowls and they've got their dough in them and they don't have Tupperware. So they just take those bowls and they throw them on their shoulder and then their cloaks over so they all look like humpbacks as they're walking out of Egypt because they've got this bread sitting there on their back and the dough is like rolling around with every step that they take. And then it says, that first exodus, there was a mixed multitude that joined them. It wasn't just the Hebrews. There were other people who saw what was going on. There were other people who saw that Pharaoh was defeated. There were other people who saw that he was not this God. And they hightailed it out of, Israel, out of Egypt with the Israelites. Here's what's such good news about that. God has not chosen this one people and just said, I'm going to save them and the rest of you, we'll see what happens. From the very beginning, God is saving all people through Israel. That becomes totally explicit in Jesus Christ, who dies not with just Hebrew written above his head, but with Latin and Greek and Hebrew so that everybody can read it. So that the whole world can see that this is your king, if you'll come to him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God has met all humanity, all human suffering and joy, all sorrow and confusion and seriousness in the cross. So, cast your eyes upon Jesus. Baptism, Peter tells us, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven as at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. God resolves the paradox in his son Jesus. Cody said last week, and it's been rolling around in my head like dough in a kneading bowl. <laughs> the greatest power in the universe is not the one who can do the most damage. 
The greatest power in the universe is the one who can keep his promise. The unstoppable force of sin and death and evil has crashed into the immovable object of Jesus Christ. And he just absorbs it. He just takes it. And because he takes it in his death, he takes all the sting out of it. And so maybe you're sitting there, staring at the mystery, and wondering what to do with it. Maybe you're not used to the mystery of the cross. A lot of Christians aren't used to mystery at all. We try to squash the mystery. <laughs> maybe you're like a lot of us, and, and you're used to your life being under control and, and on schedule and under budget. And then we come here and we're talking about mystery and wonder and entering into days like the Exodus and the crucifixion that have long since passed. And here's what I want to say. This isn't like woo-woo weirdness. This thing that has taken place for the Hebrews that still takes place in Jesus has preserved the nation of Israel against all odds unto this very day. This thing that has taken place in Jesus is the reason that you're sitting in this building. If Jesus doesn't die on the cross, if his resurrection isn't real, there's just no church. There aren't people like us who do it poorly but continue, continue to try to do it. The evidence of the truth is the fact that you're sitting here now. Because by all accounts, a crucified Savior should not have the power to change anything. And yet, he changed everything. I'm really pleased to say that later today, three young people are going to say yes to this question when we baptize them. But the question is, will you enter in? You're looking for something. You're looking for someone. Will you enter into this moment and let God be the one? And instead of just coping, instead of just trying to get through, will you surrender and be saved? The good news of Jesus is that he's already done all the saving. If we will just say yes. Lord God, we are desperate for your presence. We know that we cannot save ourselves. We know that there is no life outside of you. And Lord, as we come to the table this morning, we know, Father, that we are coming to you. Lord, as we receive the bread and the cup, we know that we are receiving you. Lord, if there's anyone here whose heart is in a place where they need to receive you. I pray, Lord God, that you would empower and encourage them to say yes. To say yes in a very real and visceral way so we might know that saving power. In your name, amen.